Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of VTubers. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about idols in Japan. And I'm not talking about golden Buddhas or anything like that. Those are not the kinds of idols we are referring to. In Japan, the term idol refers to these entertainers who might sing, dance, act, model. They could do all sorts of things. But really, it seems like the main goal for these idols is to present this image of perfection and youth and beauty and drive. I've heard it summarized down all the way to the point of being an idol is all about getting people to like you. Yeah, that is definitely a big part of it. It's not even you just want people to like you. Your goal is to get people obsessed with you. So they will buy any merchandise you put out there. You can milk them for money. That's kind of the goal. And maybe that's a cynical way of looking at it, but I think that's really what makes idol culture so fascinating. And it's one of the things that separates it from American celebrity worship. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're they're both different in, in ways. Mm-hmm. Idols are commercialized through merchandise and endorsements by their talent agencies. And they maintain what's called a parasocial relationship with a financially loyal customer fan base. Right. They're trying to create this illusion of intimacy even if like the fan has never actually met the idol in person, they want the fan to feel like they know this person and they're projecting such an unrealistically flawless image that, I mean, it just sucks in the fans and gives them this totally larger-than-life kind of romantic, idealized, parasocial relationship. It's, it's Yeah, there's definitely an intent to make the fans feel like they're connected to this person like personally as a friend. Right. Even though there's absolutely no personal relationship whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like the whole point, I guess, of the idol. Right. Another big part of it too, though, is the idea that these idols are not professionals. Like they're not, you know, the elite actors and musicians in Japan. They're just regular people that were recruited and the idea is like they're giving their all to become better and improve their skills and be all they can be and be successful, which is an idea that kind of comes up a lot in Japanese culture. Like you see that pushed in all sorts of media, just this idea that like, if you try hard enough, you can do anything, you know? Yeah. And you get to support them on their journey to becoming that person they're aiming to be. Right. And it, it kind of makes them feel more accessible too, because they're just like you. They're just normal people that are, you know, striving for more. And it's kind of a, a girl next door kind of idea. And like you said, yeah, you're there helping them along. Like you're not just a fan, you're a supporter. Yeah. Because of their, they go to such lengths to manufacture their image. Idols are often not regarded as authentic artists. It's pretty rare, I think, that they're writing their own music, for example, or anything like that. They're seen as more of interchangeable pieces that the companies can change in and out at will, and everything keeps marching on. Right. There's kind of a 
there's a line between idols and professional actors and musicians. And a lot of you know, people that want to be taken seriously as artists will reject the idol label. Yeah, absolutely. Not everyone wants to be considered an idol in Japan. But that being said, there's many, many young people that do want to become idols, that want to be part of the industry, that like it. Yeah. And a surprising number of parents like pushing kids in that direction too. Yeah. The music that idol singers generate is usually classified as J-pop, but it's there's other things that are J-pop as well. Sometimes there's a subgenre called idol pop. Yeah. Depending on who you talk to or did you hear that there's over 10,000 girls in Japan that are currently working as idols and over 3,000 active groups of idols? I'm sure that's somewhere in my notes. That sounds familiar. <laughs> that's a pretty large number, like 10,000. Yeah. And these are like often teenage girls. Like that's a lot. Right. That's another thing that kind of separates them from celebrities. I don't think you could really say that there are 10,000 major celebrities in, you know, in the US. No, it's so much more one person focused in the US, whereas we'll talk about it probably later in this episode. There's some really large idol groups in Japan. Mm-hmm. I didn't really think about it until now, but I guess another aspect of this is sort of the idea that you can find your own personal favorite idol. Like, you know, I've heard that since Japanese society is in a lot of ways pretty conformist, like you're pressured to, you know, do what you're supposed to do and say what you're supposed to say and just go along with things. So like a lot of products that are marketed in Japan, they'll have tons of different options. So you can kind of choose what fits your personality best. And like they give you these different ways of kind of carving out your own identity. And I almost feel like the idol industry does that same sort of thing. With 10,000 idols, you can pick your very favorite one and be like, this is part of who I am. Like, this is my favorite girl. This is my favorite idol. And I'm going to pour all of my, you know, attention into this one person. Absolutely. I think we'll talk about it a little more later, but it's highly encouraged even to have a favorite. Yeah, yeah. So I knew a bit about Japanese idols coming into this, you know, being... Being being, a huge idol fan? Being a weeb of some experience. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's how I'm saying it these days. (laughs) Uh, But I didn't know much about the history of idols. So it was interesting researching that for me. What's like the farthest back history of idols you came across? I was going to start with this one guy, Johnny Kitagawa. I'd never heard of him before, but I thought okay, he was that's, an interesting that's, character. That's a good start, I think. Okay. Go, go ahead. So this guy, Johnny Kitagawa, is actually often credited with being basically the creator of the idol industry. Like he started this whole thing. Yeah. And he's, he's just kind of an interesting guy. He had an interesting life. He was Japanese-American, for one thing. I was kind of surprised to learn. He was born in Los Angeles in 1931. And his dad was actually a Buddhist priest that worked at a temple in Little Tokyo. That's really interesting. Yeah. But of course, the Japanese idol industry would come from a guy from LA. (laughs) (laughs) It does make a ton of sense. Uh, So Johnny moved to Japan when he was two years old. 
But he sometimes went back to the U.S. You know, he went back and forth a bit. He actually worked at the U.S. Embassy in Japan in the 1950s. Interesting. Yeah, this guy had quite a life. He also coincidentally graduated from Sofia University. What's coincidental about that? My fiance attended Sofia University when she studied in, in Tokyo. Oh, wow. I yeah, didn't know that. Isn't That's that crazy. Cool. So anyway, Johnny is said to have created the first idol group when he was walking through Yoyogi Park, which is this huge park in Tokyo, and he found a group of boys playing basketball. You haven't heard this story? No. Oh. So he found them playing basketball, and he recruited them. He's like, you guys would make a good boy band. <laughs> Paul's okay. giving me this look. Okay. Yeah. He called them the Johnnies. Just kind of, <laughs> kind of egotistical, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it was a success. He built this company on this idea. He kept making more and more boy bands, and all the boys that worked for him became known as the Johnnies. Or as, you know, Johnny's. Um, So his company has basically had a monopoly on the male idol industry ever since. Even today, his company is the leader in male idols. Well, I heard he had a very strong influence in the media. So he would just pressure anyone to like not book any male idols for any publicity that weren't from his agency. Yeah. And he only died a couple of years ago. So he was like, he kept that going his whole life, apparently. Mm -hmm. uh, he's also credited with having created the idol training system, which we'll get into more. But he, he would recruit young boys, like as young as 10 years old, and then train them in singing, dancing, and acting. And it was like really intensive. He would have them live in a dorm. They attended a company-run school. It was like their whole lives became being an idol. That, yeah. that was their whole point of existence was to be a successful idol. He was also later accused of sexual exploitation of the boys that worked for him. Shocked Pikachu face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. So, I don't know. Just I'm a sure crazy he, I'm story. sure he never went to prison either. Yeah, I, I don't know. I read a little bit about, you know, that legal stuff gets all complicated. It's like... He was charged with this, but but then like it didn't stick for this reason, and I don't know. It, yeah, it sounded yeah. like nothing was ever really totally pinned on him. Yeah, settled out of court. Yeah. So it's interesting that they're called idols, right? So that's obviously an English loan word. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it's not actually English <laughs> because it's, it came uh, it came to Japan from a French film. This film was released in 1963, but it came to Japan in 1964, and it was called Cherches de Idole. Cherchez l'idole. Yeah, I don't know French at all, sorry. <laughs> I studied a little French. I think that's pretty close. So the idole in there is where they got idol from, because there was a woman in the movie that sang a song that became incredibly popular in Japan. So the actress was named Sylvie Vartan, and the song was called La Plus Belle Pour Aller Danser. La Plus Belle Pour Aller Danser. <laughs> Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. Let me be my French translator. <laughs> but uh, the song was incredibly popular in Japan. So that's where they just started calling... 
any like talented singer, entertainer, and idol. And that is where the whole the word came from. Yep. So the 1980s was this era that became known as the golden age of idols. I thought it was interesting that the media had these terms for like these different time periods in the idol industry. I feel like the Japanese media is so dramatic. Like they've always got just like a dramatic name for like everything. That's how you sell papers or magazines <laughs> right. or whatever. Right. You, gotta, you gotta move papers. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason the 80s was the golden age was Japan was doing pretty well at the time. You know, it was a prosperous time. And this was at the middle of their bubble economy. So there's a lot of money. People had money to spend to go see idols perform and such stuff. The proliferation of televisions. So oh, people yeah. didn't have to actually go to a concert to see an idol. They could see it at home. Some popular figures at the time were Seiko Matsuda, Akina Nakamori, and there was this all-girl idol group called Onyanko Club. Apparently, they were the first group to introduce this graduation system where older members of the group would leave and then be replaced by new, younger members. And the reason they called it graduation was because it also tied into this other concept that they kind of pioneered which was the idea of using school uniforms and this whole school concept as part of the idol group image. So, you know, they encourage people to think of these idols as like classmates. Maybe they want to make them feel more relatable, more like girl next door type thing. Yeah, still very prevalent today. Mm -hmm. By the 1990s, public interest in idols began to wane a little bit. It was less of a new and exciting thing to see them on TV. Just like American Idol got a little bit old after five or 10 years, like it starts to wane. There was also a shift in attitude caused by the economic downturn in the 90s too that all led to a decline in overall idol popularity. Mm-hmm. So this era became known as the Idol Winter period in the media. <laughs> yeah, there's a good name for all these periods. They'll keep coming. <laughs> yeah. So at this time, more young people wanted to be known as artists rather than idols. So even existing idols, big names in the 80s like Seiko Matsuda, they kind of tried to rebrand themselves as strong, independent women and legitimate artists in contrast to their idol image of being you know, these inexperienced, more amateurish type figures. The mid-90s was also when Chidals came around that name is disturbing. Yeah, I don't like that word. That's why they changed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Chidal is a portmanteau of child and idol. Child idols, Chidals. And these were especially young people being marketed as idols. Like, you know, as young as, what, 10? Yeah. It's okay. They're called junior idols now. So we feel less bad about it. It's a little less creepy, I guess. Sure. Yeah, we'll change nothing about what makes people uncomfortable. We'll just change the name. Ah, that's such a thing to do. Words are, (laughs) you can shape people's perception with words. Yep, yep, there's a lot of that going on these days. So in the 2000s, the idol industry boomed, and the media dubbed this the idol Sengoku Jidai, the idol warring period. So not only did idols become more popular, but the industry kind of broadened a bit like they came up with more ideas 
I saw two big reasons put forward as why idols boomed in popularity again. One being the internet. It became really easier to like get your personality out there, seed by a lot of people. Another one was that new groups like AKB48 came along and they started creating more fan interactivity with things like handshake events. They were selling CDs that had potentially had tickets in them that would get you into an event where you could actually go shake hands and briefly chat with a member of the group. This boosted their sales to help get them higher on the charts to get more people talking about them. And it was also easier to pull off because a group like AKB48 has a whole bunch of members. Mm -hmm. I think currently there's over 100 members in that group. So you could have 20 here, 20 there, 20 there, doing handshake events all over the place so they can meet and talk to exponentially more fans. Yeah. So there were like more gimmicks, but there were also more kind of subcategories, different types of idols that started popping up as well. You started to see gravure idols mm-hmm. uh, who pose in swimsuits or voice actors who are also idols. And we'll get into all the different types of idols a little later, but this is kind of the time period when that started happening. Um, also, as for AKB48, so they started in 2005. Some fun facts about them. They actually went on to become one of the highest earning musical acts in Japan and the fifth best-selling girl group ever in the world. You know I who number it. one is? Best-selling girl group ever. Yes. Uh, Destiny's Child? Spice Girls. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's good again. Yeah. So yeah, these days, the idol industry is doing pretty well, I'd say. Uh, there's a Tokyo Idol Festival that's been happening annually since 2010. So yeah, I saw that. As of 2019, there were over... Oh, you already said there are three... Over 3,000 female idol groups. Yeah. A lot of idols. Yeah. All right, let's talk a bit about how this whole industry works. How, how is it set up, you know? The first step, of course, is you got to recruit some potential idols. Yeah. So this starts even... You can get into training classes at a very young age. Like some of these talent agencies have classes that they do for really young girls as like a first step maybe into the idol industry. I bet they charge a bit for it too. Yeah, and as a way to make money. So like parents sometimes push these kids into these things or the kids want to do it themselves. And that's potentially one way to like start your idol career, I guess. Mm Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about they have some like national auditions. They have some of those even on TV. Sometimes they're run by magazines where they'll hold auditions and let their viewers vote for who wins the next round with like mail-in postcards or maybe today it's probably on the internet. I feel like I've come across videos on YouTube once in a while of... It's like an audition video for, you know, a girl that wants to be an idol. And I don't know, I, I guess it, it strikes me as kind of sad. It's like this girl in a rural village, like she's standing outside and you can see there's just like nothing around, you know. She lives in the middle of nowhere and she's auditioning to be exploited. I mean, basically, like it's, you don't know what you're getting into, you know, especially at that age. Like, you know, these 
agencies recruit preteens and teenagers from right. all over the country. Right. Being an idol is a job, and these girls at that age are too young to have a job, in my opinion. Well, they're also too young to really understand what a contract really means. Right, right. Which I guess they would have to rely on their parents to help them with, but some parents are more helpful than others. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know, there's all sorts of exploitation going on. I don't want to paint this you know, in too negative of a light. Yeah, but we'll, it's like, we've got a whole controversy okay. section later where we can talk about this stuff. Well, I just wanted to say, like, it's like the parents are in a way exploiting their own children because they, you know, want to make money off this whole thing. But then the agencies are exploiting the parents and the children at the same time. Yeah. It's, it's all these dreams. Even the fans, in a way, are exploiting these girls and getting exploited by the agency. It, it gets deep. Yeah. The only people that aren't getting exploited are the agencies. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So now you, you get recruited to an agency and you're working on your debut as an idol, but you need some training, right? Idols often spend a long period of time isolated from family and friends and during a busy schedule of training to get ready It can be years sometimes between being signed to a contract and actually producing any sort of media or performance. Yeah. This dream of becoming an idol is kind of life-consuming. Like, you don't have time or room for anything, like friends, family. And, uh, you know, it's actually funny, those Yakuza games that I keep talking about, there was a storyline in one of them about this girl that wanted to be an idol and yeah. she's like torn because she has a boyfriend, but if she becomes an idol, she has to leave him behind. There's this whole thing. Anyway. And the Yakuza is fairly heavily involved in the Japanese entertainment industry. So oh, yeah. I'm sure they have their hands in some idol business. Yeah. That didn't even come up in the game, actually. The Yakuza guy just like came across this girl that was, you know, stuck in this dilemma and he kind of helped her out. And- he, he's, he's the Yakuza with a heart of gold. Ah, but ah. Anyway. <laughs> so yeah, it's intense, this whole training thing. And some agencies won't even tell the idols what their schedule is going to be like until it's already happening. So it's like they're completely kept in the dark about even what they're going to be doing the very next day because the agency wants to make sure they don't have any room for any kind of personal life. Yeah, you oh, you can't schedule something fun with your family or friends because maybe maybe you're doing something that day, but we're not going to tell you until like the day before. Right. And also during this training period, these idols, I mean, like you said, they're not making any, they're not selling a product yet. So they're not making any money. And supposedly they're kind of making income from the agency, at least the agency says so, but they might be like, hey, you know, all this training that you're doing, that costs money and you got to pay for that. So, yeah. uh, but good news, yeah. the cost of that is offset by what we're paying you. So, you know, you're basically breaking even and you're not going to get any paychecks at all for, you know, a couple of years. Yeah. Here's your minimum wage and now we're taking it all back because those training classes were expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's not cool. But it happens. Just, uh, yes, yeah, so we're talking about all this rigorous training and stuff. But on the other end, there's a huge and diverse idol industry. 
there's actually some talent agencies that don't rigorously train their idols because they're marketing them as amateurs trying to grow. You know, we talked about that a little bit earlier and they like purposely don't want them to get too good. They want to make it look like they're still working on everything. Mm-hmm. So they don't even give them very good training. That happens sometimes too. So eventually the idol is introduced to the world. And from then on, they have this public image that needs to be constantly maintained. It's like we said, you, you need to be flawless. Yeah, idols are seen as a role model to the public. And their personal lives and images are very tightly controlled by the talent agencies that sign them. Right. They will impose all sorts of rules. For example, idols might not be allowed to smoke or drink in public. That would look bad. They're not supposed to be seen going to the bathroom, which is kind of Yeah, hilarious. you can't use public restrooms. <laughs> like, okay. We're just going to pee in a bottle in the van? <laughs> like, sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, they're also, I mean, they're coached, obviously, for answering interview questions in the most non-controversial, boring way they possibly can, you know? Yeah. And, like, the female idols are taught to be extremely feminine. So mm-hmm. if you're asked, what's your favorite food, you got to be, like, strawberries or something, you Cupcakes. know? You, you couldn't say, like, pork ramen. <laughs> like, that just would not be feminine enough or cute enough for yeah. your public image. One of the biggest restrictions that seems to pop up in the media fairly often is that idols are not allowed to have romantic relationships. And this can actually even be written into the contract. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and it's been to court multiple times, and it's gone both ways, depending on the judge, from what I saw. Yeah. I've got a little more about that later. Okay. But yeah, it's remember, it's all about this parasocial relationship with the fans. And to maintain that relationship, the idols need to be available. The fans need to be able to entertain this illusion that someday they could be with this person, you know? They could have a real relationship with them. Yeah, and even for some of the fans, it's not necessarily about a sexual thing, but it's about it's still about like the innocence and the need of help for that person. Mm-hmm. So you could feel think about them as a niece or a daughter or whatever, as someone you're trying to support along the way, and they have to maintain that innocence and ignorance for like that to work. Yeah, so if fans find out that an idol is actually dating someone, it can be a really big deal. Like it yeah, blows the, up. The fans can get really nasty. Many idols seem to find success in groups rather than individually. Uh, There's advantages to groups. Each member can have a distinctive role. So you can have one person that's maybe always in the center because they're the best dancer or the best looking and they attract the most attention there. Or you could have someone that's the best singer of the group. Or the oldest, most experienced member might be the leader of the group that uh, always like takes the lead with the media and whatnot. Yeah, and these groups could be made up of just a few people, or they could be huge. You know, Paul mentioned earlier AKB48 
it has a bunch of members. Right now, I believe they have 86. That's the last, most recent number I saw. Okay. And they're divided into, into these teams, but they're still considered part of this same group. And there's multiple generations. Every year, they'll bring in X amount of new people. And mm-hmm. I feel like this is kind of a way for agencies to cast a wider net, both in terms of talent and fandom. Like if they're recruiting a whole bunch of idols, they can just hold on to the ones that are doing well and kind of get rid of the other ones. And then, you know, with such a wide range of like different types of girls, different looks, different personalities, they can try to get all sorts of different types of fans. Yeah, everybody's going to have a favorite, right? Or, you know, there's 10,000 idols in Japan. There's someone everybody can relate to, theoretically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as an idol, you know, these people are going to appear in all sorts of media, right? I mean, it can be almost anything. They employ what they call a media mix strategy. And I mean, that's really important for marketing because you want to provide all sorts of content for fans to consume. Like no matter where the fans are coming from, you want them to be able to access the idols, whether it's online or in magazines or on TV or in concerts. Yeah. Singing and releasing songs and concerts is definitely a huge focus, but there's so much more. There's modeling, commercials is huge a huge percent of japanese commercials include an idol in them it's it's unbelievable 50 to 70 percent of commercials in japan feature an idol that's crazy yeah like that's so high it is it's this self-feeding cycle where the brand gets exposure due to the relationship with the idol and the idol stays in the public eye due to their relationship with the brand Mm -hmm. and they like both feed back into each other and benefit from it yeah one thing i'd always been curious about with the idol industry is how niche is it you know how or how mainstream is it how many people in japan are actually aware of what's going on in the idol industry but if 50 to 70 percent of all commercials have idols that's pretty mainstream oh definitely i don't think it's that everybody is fans of specific idols here and there but the whole point of the idol is cultivating their appearance and their presence and everything. So they're kind of like the perfect person to pick to beat an advertisement. Even if the public doesn't necessarily know their name yet, they already are ready to do that. That's like their job. Yeah. So they're going to appear in all sorts of stuff, you know, talk shows, variety shows. They might act in dramas even. And of course, there's going to be tons of merchandise for fans to buy as well. Maybe you can find some pictures of your favorite idol that you can buy. They might even be signed pictures. You know, they're going to be magazines. There are magazines like dedicated to idols. I remember on my first trip to Japan, I went to Harajuku and I was walking down Takeshita Street and I walked into this one shop and I was so confused when I went in there because this shop had like nothing in there. It was just the walls were covered in these little tiny pictures of people. (laughs) And with each picture was like a little piece of jewelry or or some little trinket. And, you know, at first I'm like, what the heck is this place? And then I realized these are all idols. And each of the pictures comes with like a little thing, like a necklace that that idol actually wears. So you can buy that item, you get the picture, 
and you get to wear what they're wearing so you feel this personal connection with them. Yeah. I don't know. I'd never seen something like that before. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Okay, so at some point, every idol's career comes to an end, and they retire, or quote-unquote graduate, if they're in one of those you know, types of groups. So usually this happens when the idol ages out, which is usually around age 25, for female idols at least. Yeah. And around 30 to 45 for male idols, which... I was surprised that that age range went so high. I, I'd never seen like a 45-year-old male idol. Yeah, in Japan, um, the more popular male groups have like 20-plus year careers. That's pretty normal if they're popular enough. Interesting. Yeah, the poor women, 25. Like, you're done. Like, that's so young. Are you kidding me? You know, I just saw something that <laughs> like, like... women are still cute at 25? Like, what? I just read something in a random place online that like a few hundred years ago, women were considered spinsters if they weren't married by age 23. Yeah, 23. <laughs> ah, how times change. 23 is so young. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Spinster. <laughs> Imagine he called a spinster at 23. <laughs> that, we should bring that back. Just start that, going around. Hey, spinster. That's so unfair. <laughs> What should we call guys at 23 who aren't married? Young whippersnapper. <laughs> That's too positive. <laughs> That's the double standard. That's just how it works. Oh, we just got to keep that going. <laughs> Anyways. Okay, so this retirement. Before the 1980s, apparently, they would call it a retirement or a disbandment. But, uh, you know, like I said, they use that term graduation these days because it frames it as a more positive thing. You know, they're moving on to better things. Yeah. And there might even be a graduation concert, a kind of farewell concert for that specific idol that is graduating. Yep. Those can be very popular. A lot of uh, graduation merchandise, last chance to get <laughs> something from this idol. Yeah, I guess that's another thing. That actually popped up in uh, the Yakuza game as well. There was an idol that had retired years ago, and then it was like only the hardcore fans were still looking for her merchandise, and it shot up in value. It was like super hard to find because it's, you know, it's rare all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> Should we talk about some of the unique fan culture involved in the idol industry? Yeah, I think that's one of the most fascinating things about the industry. So there's some unique terminology involved. One of the most interesting things, I think, is called WOTA. They're the passionate male fans of idols. Yeah, the word comes from otaku. I'm not sure where the W at the beginning came from, but WOTA otaku. Yeah, kind of think the same thing there, like very obsessive fans. Yeah. And a Wota might have an Oshimen, which is your favorite idol. You know, you got your one person that you're real into. But if you don't have a favorite, you might be called a DD, which is short for Dare Demo Daisuki, which means I love anyone. You know, it doesn't matter who they are. And usually in this idol fan culture, DD is a negative term. Like it's a bad thing to not have a favorite. 
it seems to me like it's saying like, you're not dedicated enough. You're not as big of a fan as I am because I have a favorite and you're just like, oh, whatever. I don't, I mean, it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah. Like people don't refer to themselves as DD. Mm-hmm. Like you wouldn't do that. It's not a positive thing. I found that interesting too. Totally. It's like calling somebody a normie. <laughs> you're too normal. You get on my level. Yeah. There's also a related term, MD, which stands for Mina Daisuke, which means I love everyone. And this is apparently a little more acceptable than DD because you can still have an Oshiman. You can still have a favorite, but also love the rest of the group at the same time. Okay, okay. As long as you have a favorite, it's cool. Yeah. Okay, so as for these Wota, what are they up to? <laughs> the, the biggest thing for me is they, they perform Wotage, which an, is an organized sequence of chants and dancing that they do at the shows for these idols, often involving glow sticks. So even the crowds will have dances and chants that they do along to these idols. It makes the whole thing just like a totally unique kind of experience. Yeah. I've seen videos where a fan, and this is in specific types of idol settings, like smaller shows, but sometimes a fan will go right up to the stage in front of their favorite idol, and they will know every move of the dance, and they're just mirroring the idol's dance right in front of them. And it might, even, it might be like a middle-aged salaryman type guy, you know? Yeah. It's just fascinating. It is. Like, some of them get very intricate. Like, they're really doing choreographed dance moves for like a while. One of the videos I saw, I would almost say that that guy performed more energetically than the idol herself. <laughs> yeah, some, some of them get into it. <laughs> so, fans also spend... A lot of money sometimes on merchandise and endorsed products from the idols they support. And they compare it to spending money on loved ones. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's how close they feel to these idols. Like, I just want to support her and show my feelings through buying all this stuff. Yeah. They'll even buy like multiple copies of you know, their CD or something just to support them, like just to funnel money to them, basically. Yeah, and help boost their rating on the charts yeah. and stuff. I saw a documentary about, you know, a specific idol and her, like, top fans. And there was this one guy, he was like a, a businessman, I would guess maybe like late 50s or somewhere around there. And he lived alone in this tiny apartment and the entire place was packed with merchandise from this one idol. And yeah, like you said, he talked about it like she was almost a family member that he was, you know, trying to support. And yeah, like, he, I'm he so just, proud of her. She's doing such a great job. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's interesting. Some people even give up their careers and dedicate their life savings to just following their favorite idol around and like going to all their shows. Yep. So, as you can probably imagine, if someone has dedicated their whole life to one specific idol and they feel like they have this intimate relationship with this idol, whether or not it's like romantic, it's still intimate, you know? Imagine how that person would feel if they find out that their idol is not exactly who they think. You know, this 
illusion of perfection is shattered somehow. Going back to you know what we mentioned before about when fans find out that an idol has a romantic relationship of their own, or really, I mean, any kind of personal life, it seems like. Like anything that the fans don't know about, it can be a big deal because that purity and innocence is really important to maintain their idol image. I have some stats here. In 2016, there was an internet survey of 202 male college students in Japan. So, you know, this is not a a perfect study. It's a pretty specific demographic, you know, the sample size. And it wasn't specifically idol fans. These are just normal college students, right? 74.3% of respondents said that they thought the idol dating ban was unnecessary. The idols are people. They deserve to be able to date. That's just a human right. I I agree. But the main idol audience seems to be in like their men in their 30s and 40s. So not necessarily college students. Sure. So the remaining 25.7% said it's an idol's duty to not have a romantic relationship because it'll make her less appealing. And if they get in a relationship, they should retire, which does happen. Like, that's how big the scandals get, you know? Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's not all Japanese society that thinks that idols should be living this way and that that's cool. But still, 25%, that's... Yeah, and that's not even necessarily their fans. If they pulled their fans, it might even be higher than I'm that. sure, yeah. Yeah, so most Japanese idols are not allowed to form any sort of romantic relationships. And if they ever want to get married, they have to get permission from their agencies first, which may not happen. (laughs) Yeah. There have been several idols who have been confirmed to have been dismissed, suspended, demoted, and or forced to leave their groups or agencies following reports of them dating, or having sexual relationships. Mm -hmm. So it definitely happens. Yeah. I have a little more about this type of stuff in the controversy section later on, but you have anything else you want to talk about right now for the fans? Yeah, I mean, specifically, well, since we're talking about the dating ban, I wanted to mention uh, the famous incident with Minami Minagishi of AKB48. In 2013, she made a viral video where she shaved her head in penance for reports that she was involved in a romantic relationship. Yeah. And it became kind of a big scandal because, like, people, especially outside of Japan, were kind of like shocked and horrified that this young woman was like crying and shaving her head in an attempt to be forgiven for going out on some dates, Mm -hmm. like something that seems like a very normal, natural thing. Yeah, I I, remember this happening. Me too. It was a big deal when it happened. And it's a disturbing video. It is. It shouldn't be, you know, she shouldn't have to go through that emotional torment for doing something that's so, I mean, it's part of the human experience, you know? Right. There's definitely some backlash after that. You mentioned some uh, lawsuits earlier. There was one lawsuit filed against a 17-year-old former idol 
accusing her of accepting an invitation to a hotel room of two male fans, which then caused the group to have to be disbanded within three months of their debut. So the talent agency was seeking money from her and damages lost for having to break up the group. And the judge ruled in favor of the talent agency and ordered the woman to pay 650,000 yen, stating that the dating ban was necessary for idols to win the support of male fans. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) But then on the other side of that, just a year later, in 2016, a similar lawsuit was filed in Tokyo where the court ruled in favor of a 23-year-old former idol with the judge stating that the dating ban significantly restricts the freedoms to pursuit of happiness. So right now, it seems to me that there's just unclear laws in Japan for if that should be legal or not, and each judge is just having to make their own call as these cases present themselves. Yeah. But wow, right? Wow, indeed. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about some of the many subcategories of idols. Sure. You know, they have different target audiences. They do different types of things. All sorts of stuff out there. Where do you want to start, Paul? Well, let's start with reviewer idols. Okay. You know, I'd seen that word a lot before, but I don't think I'd ever heard anyone say it out loud. So I Googled like, how do you pronounce this word? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I'm frustrated because I feel like a lot of the time when I have to do that, when I Google, how do you pronounce this word? And then you find all these videos on YouTube. It's like, here's how the word is pronounced. And it's all different. It's all different <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I heard people say gravure. I saw people say gravier. <laughs> like, who knows? I think I got it right. What did you say? Gravure. Gravure. Something like that. Okay, I like that. Yeah. What is gravure? They're idols that are models who pose in pinup style swimsuits for photographs and magazines and photo books targeted towards men. Yep. They're idols that are supposed to be hot in yeah, swimsuits. They're, they're, yeah, hot models. There you go. What's next? <laughs> Uh, I think we mentioned junior idols. They're basically considered idols that are 15 or younger. Uh huh. This is one of those categories that can get a little concerning. Yep. So, you know, we talked about those meet and greets like AKB48 does and a lot of other idol groups do now. Yeah. I've seen meet and greets of junior idols where it's like their fans are these middle-aged guys and they're holding, you know, they're grabbing onto the hands of these 12-year-old girls and whatever, like nothing improper is happening, but it's like... That's weird. You're a grown man, and you're like waiting in line to meet a 12-year-old girl? I'm sorry. That's weird. And another thing I saw is that sometimes they like won't let go. Like you get a limited amount of time to interact with this person, but then they need to have like bouncers almost pulling these guys away, and they're just like grabbing on, like they just want a couple more seconds, you know? It's, wow. it's a little over the top. Yeah. And uh, basically, this reminds me a lot of the child beauty pageants that exist in America. You know, a lot of the same types of issues there. And we don't need to get too deep into that, but there that is. 
Okay, what's next, Paul? So one of the newer subcategories is net idols, which is people who have become famous through the internet via social media or streaming or something of that sort. Yeah, it's like they're trying to create this online persona. You know, their whole life might be broadcast, basically, for everybody to see. There's also the voice actor idols who gain fame by voice acting for anime or something like that. And then they start releasing songs as well and kind of merging into both fandoms. Yeah, sometimes they might have had a successful career even before they got into voice acting. Like maybe they were already singers or actors. That seems to be kind of where the idea of idol voice actors started was like crossovers from other types of media into voice acting. But it can go a lot of ways. And we got some more stuff a little later that relates to that. There's AV idols, which is adult video idols, which Mm -hmm. is pretty much what it sounds like. Yeah. And, you know, you might think, well, isn't that just a porn star, basically? Like, how are they also idols? And I found it interesting to learn that the porn industry in Japan is actually not as far removed from other types of entertainment as it is in the U.S. So, for example, a celebrity, you know, mainstream, professional actor, singer, celebrity type person might appear in adult videos even after establishing their career in mainstream media. Or it could go the other way. An adult video actress could become a mainstream celebrity. Doesn't really happen in the U.S. No, yeah, not really. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Uh, There are also people that start out as idols, you know, more conventional idols that sing and dance, and then later on, they get into adult videos. Mm-hmm. Bandles is kind of a fun word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These are <laughs> idol groups that are also bands. So not only do they sing and dance, but they also play instruments. So I feel like a lot of the traditional idol industry, I'm not into at all, and I find problematic in some ways. But some of these subcategories of idols, I'm actually very into. So I guess you could say I've got a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the Japanese idol industry. But one I want to talk about is a group called Baby Metal. They perform a music that's sometimes called kawaii metal, you know, cute metal. So it's basically this group of young idols, young female idols. Junior idols? They, Are you telling me you're into junior idols, Paul? They were, but they're not anymore. <laughs> but yeah, they perform. They created this group when they were 12 and 14, I think, for the three girls, somewhere in that range. And it's super hard rock music. And then they sing on top of it and dance in a really cute style. And they wear these cute outfits, but that are also like black and hardcore in a way. It's kind of this really unique and odd meshing of like metal music and kawaii culture. And I like it because I like rock. I like metal. And it just works for me somehow. Yeah. Longtime listeners of the podcast will have heard Paul talk about baby metal before. Um, Yeah. I've been to a show. I got lucky enough to go to a show and they killed it. It was great. I had a wonderful time. And I got to agree with you. Baby metal is cool. I mean, the music is 
good. Yeah. And like, uh, to be honest, a lot of idol music has its merits. Like, you know, the industry is whatever. It's messed up in some ways. But there are still really talented music producers that are making the music. And a lot of it is actually quality stuff. And baby metal, like the musicians that play the metal backing music are amazing. Like it's incredibly technical, skillful music. When I first heard of baby metal, I didn't think of them as an idol group at all. And I mean, I didn't know a ton about the idol industry anyway, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting gimmick. You know, you got these young girls, they're not the types of people that you would expect to be making like heavy metal music. Yeah. And then it's combined with this crazy, super fast music. It is cool stuff. And they're one of the few idol groups. I mean, they're an idol group that has managed to establish a decent sized fan base in the US, even outside of like idol fan groups. You know what I mean? They are the highest ranking group from Japan ever on the US charts. Mm. It's crazy. Yeah, it is. They're like famous in Japan, but they're not huge. But outside of Japan, they're more famous than pretty much any other group from Japan, I'd say. I actually saw a video where this guy went around in the streets of Japan just interviewing random people and played a baby metal video and was like, what do you think of this? Like, what do you think the <laughs> Japanese public, how would they respond to this, you know? And most people are like, I think this music is like too heavy for most, you know, the average Japanese person. Like it's... Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because... You know, that type of music is popular for a lot of people in the U.S., but they might, like hardcore metal fans in the U.S. might think, oh, baby metal's too cutesy. Yeah. It's not heavy enough because they're, they're little girls. I don't know. They got yeah. these high-pitched voices. Yeah, they're very successful. Yeah. Uh, so I was surprised. I learned a few new things about baby metal. They actually started as a subunit of a junior idol group called Sakura Gakuin which was one of those groups that really leaned into that school concept. You know, we talked about how a lot of groups think of all the members as like classmates. And Sakura Gakuin, they had these different subunits. One of them was a science club subunit where the members performed wearing lab coats. Okay. Did you not know about this? No, I oh, didn't. I looked into them a bit. There was a, a group called the Go Home Club. Okay. You know, in Japan, people that aren't in a school club are considered part of the go home club because they just go home after school. So this group performed in pajamas. <laughs> okay. And then Baby Metal started as the heavy music club subunit of this group. I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah. They've come a long ways. Yeah. Uh, another subcategory of idols are known as underground idols, which I think you could kind of think of as indie idols. They're not managed by these huge agencies. You know, they're independently managed. They perform at smaller venues. So it seems like this is a pretty different scene from the mainstream idols because they're not going to appear in mass media. They're not selling huge numbers of CDs produced by some major record label. These are, in a way, the most accessible types of idols for the average person because they're mostly interacting through live performances and handshake events. Like that's their bread and butter. Yeah, and they can be a lot more local. A lot of the bigger groups are probably centered out of Tokyo or other bigger cities. 
mm-hmm. whereas these underground idols can be in cities all over the country. That's true. There are a lot of local idols as well in you know more rural areas. But even in Akihabara, this subculture has grown there. Akihabara is, of course, that area of Tokyo known for anime and otaku culture, and there are dedicated venues there for these underground idols. So, you know, these are the types of places where the fans can go right up to the stage. You can meet the idol, really get that uh, parasocial relationship going. Yeah, there's something nice about small shows. You know, when you go see a band and only 50 people show up, like you really all have a chance to just like talk to them afterwards and get that more intimate experience. Mm hmm. Okay, Paul, let's talk about some of the more recent developments in idol culture, and that's a a whole other category called virtual idols. Yeah, we're both really into this in slightly different ways. Right. You want to talk about Vocaloids a little bit? Sure. So virtual idols as a whole, we're talking about like digital avatars that are also idols. So Vocaloids is one form that these virtual idols can take. And the most famous Vocaloid is named Hatsune Miku. Maybe you've seen her. She's kind of this anime-style character. She's got this super long teal-colored hair that she usually wears in two pigtails, like really long ones. And essentially what she is is she's a digital pop star. Like she's not a real person. She's a manufactured pop star. So she does concerts where they project this huge hologram of her dancing around and stuff, and she's performing these songs and singing. But the coolest part about this whole concept for me is how it works. Like I I did some reading into the history of this whole thing and where this concept came from. And there's this company, it's called Krypton Future Media, that developed Hatsune Miku not even as a character, but as a voice bank. Like she was originally just a piece of software that people could use to make synthesized vocals. So like if you're a music producer, you don't need to go find a singer and pay them and get them into the studio and record stuff and learn just all these songs. You can use this software to program vocals. And what's especially cool about that is that you can have Miku sing things that are impossible, like physically impossible for an actual human singer to sing. She can hit any note. She can sing insanely fast. She never, you know, trips over her words or anything. She's, she can sing a perfect vocal performance. So a lot of producers really push the limits of what's possible with a vocal. And that, I think that's really interesting and fun to hear. So if you've heard some Japanese pop music where it sounds like the vocal is like auto-tuned, but in a really extreme way to where it almost sounds mechanical, that's probably Vocaloid music that you're hearing. It's a pretty recognizable sound because it doesn't sound 100% natural. Like they haven't perfected it to the point where it's indistinguishable from a real person. And actually Miku isn't the only Vocaloid out there. There are also other characters, like other voice banks that these companies have made. And the songs that are made with these Vocaloids, 
can be made by anybody. Like I said, anybody can go out there and buy this software. So there are tons of music producers that write all this music. Miku's voice has been used to create over 100,000 songs. Wow. She's probably the most prolific singer on the planet. I bet. And she doesn't exist. <laughs> so, you know, she started out as, a, as this voice, and the company that created the sound bank came up with a really rough concept of who she was as a character, but it was mostly just about her physical characteristics. You know, they, they figured out kind of what she looks like, how old she is, the styles of music that she might want to make. But besides that, it's all up to the community, you know, to flesh out this character. So her personality is crafted by fans, producers, music video creators. Her persona is a collaboration of all the content creators. And I think that's just a really cool concept. It is. It is pretty cool. So Hasune Miku, of course, you can find her music all over the place, but she also appears in lots of other types of media, one of which is a line of video games called Project Diva that I've been getting into lately. It's a, you know, a rhythm game. Yeah, they're fun games. It is a fun game. So that's my rant about Vocaloids. Now, Paul, I know that you have a certain interest in something called a VTuber. I think you even mentioned that at the very beginning of the episode. Why don't you tell us about that? I did. I do have a slight interest in VTubers <laughs> that's grown over the last uh, year plus. That's probably the creepiest laugh I've ever heard from you, Paul. <laughs> I'm very interested in VTubers. All right, I'll just be straight about it. So VTuber stands for virtual YouTuber. It's a person that uses an anime-style character that they control through face-tracking software. So, for the most part, people do streams as a virtual YouTuber. So, it's a real person, but on the screen is what you see is an animated anime character that reacts based on what the actual person is doing in front of the camera. Um, it can range from full 3D body tracking technology to just basic 2D face tracking technology with an iPhone. It really is kind of a fusion of anime, idol, and internet culture all together into one new thing. So this only started back in 2016 with the debut of Kizuna Ai. She was the first VTuber it slowly gained steam, and in the last like year, year and a half, it's really kind of exploded onto the scene, and they're gaining a ton of popularity. I saw that by 2020, there were over 10,000 active VTubers. Yeah, it blew up super fast. They're often really stream-focused, with like a lot of internet streaming, sometimes playing games, sometimes doing karaoke or singing songs. But they also still participate in some traditional idol activities. Like a lot of them do release new music or cover songs that you can buy. They do virtual performances where holograms perform on the stage. Or you could watch them on your computer where their avatars are performing set lists. It's like a concert. Um, one thing that differs them from the idol industry a little bit is the anonymity that comes with it. Like, nobody knows who any of these people are. So, in some ways, that actually leads to 
more personality being shown because the, you can't like actually react back on the person in real life in a way. That's an interesting phenomenon. I've heard from people that have been like school mascots and stuff that once your identity is hidden behind this mask or this persona, it, like it turns you into a different person. You have so much freedom to do whatever you feel like that character should do because it doesn't reflect on you as a person. You know, it doesn't come back to who you are. Yeah, you're just playing a role. Yeah. You know, so I first heard of this whole concept when I saw some Kizuna Eye videos on YouTube. And at first I'm like, what is, I don't know what this is. What is happening here? And then I realized it's, it's like an anime character come to life. It's an anime character that you can talk to and interact with in real time. And I don't know, it's, it's just a fascinating idea. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I first heard about this, I was kind of weirded out. I was like, what? Interactive anime person? That's so odd. But like, it didn't take long for me to get into it and realize this is like the next evolution of anime. This is like anime, but they can actually interact with you and respond to questions and stimulus they get from the viewership, which is a totally new thing. I was really impressed with those first videos I saw from Kizuna Ai because she does the full body tracking and it's really well done. Like It's amazing how lifelike that character seems. I've looked at other videos for, you know, these other characters you've been telling me about and to be honest, I don't I don't get it. It doesn't grab me as much. And I think part of it is that the avatars don't seem as expressive. I don't know. That's just my my impression of a lot of them. I think I might be more interested if there were more sophisticated facial tracking and body tracking. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, a lot of them do use, just for accessibility reasons, they use the more basic bones, just face tracking, mm-hmm. because it's really difficult and expensive to get the whole body 3D tracking. That's yeah. really hard to do. It seems like the technology still has some room for improvement. Like Absolutely. I've seen a lot of ones where it gets kind of glitchy. Like if somebody's I mean, it's clear that the the voice actor is like out of frame of the camera and all of a sudden their avatar kind of freezes in place while you can still hear them talking and stuff. And then all of a sudden it pops back into motion. Just that kind of stuff. I don't know. Yeah, definitely. If they get out of the range of the camera, that that happens for sure. But there's lots of interesting and unique things they can do. Like they can move their avatar around on the screen and change the size of it. And the more talented ones can do that in a way that works really well with what they're doing mm. and kind of adds to the experience, I think. But my my interest in VTubers has also corresponded to my interest in streaming in general. I've moved much more away in the last two years in my life from watching like pre-filmed TV shows and movies and stuff to I watch almost exclusively now streamers, a little bit of YouTube videos, and sometimes live sports. Hmm. That's about all I watch anymore. I, I don't I canceled my Netflix. I don't have anything like that. I just like watch people that are live and interacting with the community. And I didn't realize that. So even before you got into VTubers, you watched a lot of streaming stuff? It was I was like starting to switch right at that time and I was hmm. like finding more 
real life streamers, I guess, and VTubers kind of at the same time. Okay. And I watch a lot of both right now. Interesting. Yeah. Um, the characters these VTubers have are often themed. Like they'll have a backstory. Like th- there might be part animal, like think cat girl. Like, so they might look like a human, but they'll have cat ears and a tail that kind of wags around in the background that really plays into the Japanese kawaii idea mm-hmm. and the cuteness of it all. Um, they'll often have elaborate backstories about either what their job is or they're tied to some myth that exists or things like that. Um, it kind of helps build the character. Um, and I've noticed as time goes on, a lot of these VTubers debut and they're very much like in the character and six months or a year later, it's really kind of mixed between their own real life personality because they're just streaming so often they slide into that and the myth or backstory that they've built up for the character. They have like more to draw upon to make jokes and content and stuff. Yeah, I think that's smart. That that having a character concept kind of gives them a launch pad, something to build on to create their persona. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is one of the only areas of Idol that's really growing outside of Japan. So the biggest company in Japan for virtual idols is Hololive, and they actually have an Indonesian branch and an English branch now, where they have VTubers that perform in other languages mainly and they've become really really popular the most popular vtuber in the world is actually an english-speaking vtuber gaurgura if anyone's ever heard of her i've heard of her cute little shark girl i've heard you talk about her (laughs) maybe once or twice she's got over three and a half million subscribers on youtube right now that's like not the biggest youtuber in the world but that is like significantly big for a streamer and a new generation of Japanese Hololive VTubers just debuted and they were all going over a hundred thousand subscribers before they had even released content at all. Hmm. Some of them even got locked out on Twitter because they grew so fast that it like triggered the Twitter algorithms to think this is a fake account getting signed up by bots and they got disabled. Wow. Within a week, some of them were at half a million subscribers. So it's really blowing up at an exponential rate. I don't know exactly when it's going to stop, but it's still shooting up as of this moment. Yeah. Which I kind of enjoy because I'm into it. It's amazing how much that's exploded. Like I, you know, I remember I was living my life and VTubers were not a thing. And then all of a sudden they were everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And then you're talking to me about them, and I'm like, okay, explain to me what exactly is happening here. What is this? Yeah. So one interesting tie-in I saw between VTubers and the idol culture is we talked about the origin of the idol name was from that French movie. Mm-hmm. And the song released was called, I butchered it as La Plus, because that's how it's written. The name of one of the newest VTubers in Hololive is La Plus. Huh. I, of course, didn't realize that until I was just doing my research the other day, and I came across that name, and I was like, oh, interesting tie-in. So that song, it was La Plus Belle something, something. 
la plus belle means uh, the most beautiful. Ah. So la plus is like the most. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So the last thing I'll say about VTubers, because I could talk for hours, is they're even starting to develop their own unique culture now. It's already a blending of the different internet anime and idol, but there's new vocabulary that's emerging. A couple like quick examples would be, they use the word say-so a lot. In Japanese, that means clean or tidy, but they've adopted it to mean wholesome or pure. Like, oh no, I'm say-so. I would never do something like that. I'm say-so. Hmm. But then they've got another word that's yabai, that in Japanese means something like dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. When they start getting too dirty or too lewd, someone might say like, oh, you're being yabai right now. You know, They've kind of taken those, those words on as a play on the whole purity of the idol industry. And the fact that they can get away with so much more being virtual idols. Like they swear, they say lewd things. They, they go way farther than any real life idol ever could go. And that's, I guess, part of the anonymity is all I can figure. Yeah. And the internationalization of it, you know, it's, it may have come from the idol culture, but it's, becoming its own separate thing yeah. in the rest of the world. Yeah, the English VTubers use these words as well to describe themselves. It's definitely an interesting phenomenon. Agreed. So another somewhat related idea is anime idols. So these are animated characters who are also idols. And this also ties back into that idol voice actor idea, because you might be a fan of an anime idol you might also be a fan of the voice actor that voices that idol. So there are a bunch of anime series. What's the plural of series? How do you say that? Series. Okay. There are a bunch of anime series. It just it feels wrong. There are a bunch <laughs> of anime series and franchises about anime idols. One real popular one, as far as I can tell, is Love Live. Mm-hmm. So it's an anime for one thing, but it's so much more. And I think it was on my first trip to Japan. I was in Akihabara and I saw like a giant billboard for Love Live. And I saw Love Live merch everywhere. And I'd seen like on Reddit, you know, people talking about Love Live and all these characters. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, what is this? Because I got that it was an anime, but there's so many characters. I'm like, how are there this many girls in this show and you know through my research i have come to realize that love live is a whole multimedia project based around these school idol groups so the idea is that there are these fictional groups of idols you know they're just like real life idol groups but they're fictional ones in anime but they also strive to make these anime idols almost as real and accessible as real-life idols. Because in addition to the anime, there's a manga, there are movies, there are novels, they're putting out music, there are video games based around these idols. They even do concerts where the voice actors are performing as their anime idol persona. So 
it's this really interesting crossover or a melding of the 3D and 2D worlds. And I even saw that some people call it 2.5D <laughs> when the voice actors portray their anime characters in real life. Interesting. Yeah. So I read that some fans actually prefer these anime idols to real idols because they can be even more perfect. You know, they never get in scandals. Right. Since they don't really exist, they're not real people, you can make them do whatever the fans want them to do. So one drawback of this type of idol is that you can't really interact with fictional characters the same way you could with real people. You can't do a meet and greet and hold their hand and that kind of thing. But what you can do is buy all their merchandise. You can argue with people online about who the best girl is. And the companies that are making these anime idols actually come up with ways to make them interactive as well. For example, fans can vote on things like how an idol's hair is done in a new music video, or they can vote on the name of a new idol group. You know, all sorts of things. The idea is that they want to make the fans the producers. Like the fans get to make decisions about who these idols are. Uh, one more thing I want to talk about with anime idols is uh, something called Zombie Land Saga. And this was brought to my attention by a listener of the podcast that emailed us recently. Thank you, dear listener. You know who you are. Uh, so I'd never heard of this before, Zombie Land Saga. Paul, you said you were aware of this? Yeah, I'd come across it before browsing for anime to watch, but I haven't seen it. Can you tell us what it's about? Uh, zombie idols. <laughs> yeah, I saw the concept is that there's this high school girl who is killed by a truck on the same day that she's going to apply to be an idol. So she's dead. And then 10 years later, there's this guy that wants to create a zombie idol group. So he brings her back to life along with these six other girls from different eras in Japanese history, different time periods. He brings them all back to life as zombies and uh, creates this zombie idol group to revitalize the idol business in Saga Prefecture, which is a pretty rural part of Kyushu that we've kind of glossed over before. I looked back at the Kyushu episode. I don't think we even mentioned Saga Prefecture really? or anything in it. Yeah. Huh. We didn't really go prefecture by prefecture in that episode. Hmm. But uh, yeah, so original concept. That's what I'll say. That yeah. sounds yeah. sounds interesting. <laughs> I haven't checked it out yet, but I, I might need to look up some episodes of that, see how it is. Yeah. Lastly, we've uh, glossed over a little bit of this before, but let's get into some of the criticisms of the idol industry. Okay, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Mean, most of the controversy focuses on the treatment of the idols. Yes. You know, we talked about how they recruit young girls who are inexperienced and naive. And those are the words of a former idol, actually. She described her past self as inexperienced and naive. And that's how... You know, they can push young girls to sign these pretty one-sided contracts and, you know, essentially take ownership of their lives. And they could even do a bunch of illegal stuff, but the idols don't necessarily know whether or not what the company is doing is legal. And even if they know it's illegal, 
what can they do? You know, if they speak up, they're jeopardizing their dream of becoming an idol. Yeah, anyone that speaks against the company becomes an enemy. Yeah, you don't have a chance at that point if you make any kind of accusation, really. There's been criticism that all these close proximity events, such as the handshake events and everything, leads the fans to develop you know, unrealistic expectations of their closeness with the idols and to get delusional about it, which has led to some violent incidents, which have led to a lot of people criticizing the idol management groups for not providing proper security for the idols. Um, There were some horrific events involving stabbings and assaults at fan meet and greet events or even at the idols homes that are just awful which has led to some changes in security procedures for some of the idol groups but i don't think it's been entirely addressed and a lot of the sometimes people involved in the assaults don't even end up facing any criminal charges or anything which is also disturbing there's a lot of victim blaming. Oh, yeah. You know, well, oh, well, she shouldn't have turned down his presence and then this wouldn't have happened to her, that type of thing. Yeah. I've heard about situations where, you know, something bad, not necessarily an assault or stabbing or whatever, but like some scandal happens with an idol that's not really their fault. You know, they, they weren't the instigator of this thing, but then they still have to go on TV and apologize publicly. Like, oh, I'm sorry for causing trouble. It's like, you, you didn't. Yeah. yeah. You're right. If someone does something bad to you and creates a scandal, it's your fault. Mm-hmm. Almost. Idols also really don't make a lot of money. We talked about how, you know, in the training, they're not making anything. But even once they become successful, unless you're like at the very, very top of the industry, you're not making much. And by the time you retire you might be left with you know, very little. And you've spent your entire life on this idle thing. You don't really have any marketable skills. You don't have a way to transition into a more normal life out of the public eye. And that yeah. leads to problems. I mean, there have also been you know, a fair number of suicides of idols and former idols. Yeah, a lot of agencies get wealthy while the idols don't, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. There's also... You know, the disturbing behavior of fans where like you're just living a normal life and the fans can get really upset and turn on you and start giving you negative comments and death threats because they found out you did something in your personal life. Or there's even a rumor that you did something in your personal life that you may not have even done. And all of a sudden everybody is turning on you in a really toxic way. Yeah. And maybe even the worst of all, there seems to be a huge number of reported abuse and harassment within the industry of the idols, and very rarely, if ever, are there consequences for these men that are harassing the women that work for them, Yeah, which is very disturbing. And also disturbingly common in... I mean, not just Japan, but the entertainment industries around the world. Yeah, it's not just Japan, that's for sure. And, you know, we mentioned the junior idols and and how problematic that can be. It actually wasn't until 1999 that Japan banned production and distribution of sexually explicit depictions of minors. 
Yeah, I saw that too. I was like, what? And before that, they actually sold photo books with nude junior idols. You know, we're talking 10 to 15 year old girls. That's so sad because it's like so many people failed those girls, Mm -hmm. you know, like the government failed, the parents failed, the agency failed, just everybody was exploiting them. Yeah. And even though like that is illegal now, the junior idol industry still kind of tries to get away with as much as they can. You know, they're skirting the line and there's yeah, kind of a, a gray bikini area. bikini photo shoot, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, that's not illegal or whatever. Like, yeah. yeah. So, and like we said, the idol industry is massive and there are tons of different subcategories and different stuff is going on. Like these criticisms don't necessarily apply to every single section of the idol industry. Right, or every company or every idol group. There's a lot of diversity there. Yeah. Anything else to say about idols, Paul? I think we've said enough for now. I think you're right. But before we end the episode, we have an announcement to make. This is episode 95, which means we're coming up on episode 100 in a few months. And our announcement is that we have decided that we're going to be going on hiatus once episode 100 is released. You know, our original goal in doing this podcast was we wanted to give people a solid foundation of knowledge about Japan in case they were interested in visiting Japan or maybe just wanted to know more about the culture. And I think we've, we've done a pretty good job of accomplishing that goal, wouldn't you say, Paul? Yeah, I mean, when we started... I didn't really think we were going to get to 100 episodes. <laughs> kind of crazy. Yeah. Think about how long we've been doing this. So we haven't quite decided exactly what the future of the podcast is going to be after episode 100. Uh, but at the very least, you know, all 100 episodes are going to stay up on all the major podcasting platforms. So you can still listen. You can catch up on old episodes if, uh, if you haven't heard all of them. You know, if you plan to go to Japan, you can always go back and dig through this bank of info to help you plan your trip and all that kind of stuff. One thing I will say is that there will definitely be an episode to announce when it's actually possible to travel to Japan again. I think Paul and I are both looking forward to that time. Yeah, we've been doing this for over two years now. And I haven't made it to Japan since we started this. And, and for the majority of time that we've been making the podcast, nobody can go to Japan. Like all our tips about planning a trip have not been uh, super useful. Yeah. I mean, and honestly, it's been eating away at me a little bit. Like I really want to go. I've been researching this stuff week after week for two years now. I've got this massive list of things I really want to see and do in Japan that I just can't do. And I'm just kind of getting over to like adding more to the list for the moment. I just want to take a break, wait for hopefully things to get back to normal at some point. And, you know, hopefully I get to Japan sometime in the near future. And then I think I would want to tell you all, all about it, but we'll see how that goes. Yeah. In the meantime, I've set the goal for myself with this extra time I'm going to have in my life now, I want to try to learn a little more Japanese. Hmm. 
It's been a long time since I've studied in Japanese. I know a few words, but I really can't say anything. Um, it would be really nice to be able to interact more with Japanese people next time I'm there. And I'm not going to lie, it would kind of be nice to understand a little bit more of the Japanese VTubers and what they're <laughs> saying. <laughs> sure. So that's my uh, personal goal that hopefully I can fulfill in some of the time that I'll be freed up in my life now. All right. Well, that's cool. We can, uh, we can practice together. It's been a while since I really spent much time trying to improve my Japanese language skills, but yeah. you know, it's, it's always fun having Japanese to use on a trip like actually being able to put it to use. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, so we'll definitely announce when people can go to Japan. We'll let everybody know. And then we will hopefully go to Japan. And then maybe we'll talk about it, start up the podcast again, something like that. Who knows? But yeah, just wanted to let everyone know what the plan is so it doesn't come out of nowhere. I also want to say thank you. And I mean, we'll do a long thing at the end of episode 100 i'm sure but just want to say thank you to everyone that supported us over the last two and a half years everyone that's reached out to us suggested topics for episodes you know if you suggested a topic that we didn't get to i apologize Uh, we still do have your suggestion on a list though so at some point in the future it's still a possibility we got a few more episodes left we might uh, we might just hit it yeah five more yeah. Two and a half months worth of episodes. Yeah. So they're going to be good ones. Yeah. Well, if you want to reach out to us and uh, say whatever you want to say, you can send an email to feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. You could also reach us through our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. There's also a donate page on the website. And you know, even once we're not creating new content, it still costs money just to keep the podcast up and available. So, you know, anything you could contribute, if, if you find value in the podcast, that would be helpful and we would appreciate it. Absolutely. Anyway, Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're going to be talking about the city of Kobe. Okay. I know there's some delicious beef that comes from there. I know it's near Osaka. I know they make a lot of sake there. Oh. Don't they? Isn't that one of the main sake producing areas? That does sound familiar. Well, we'll know a lot more by next episode. I'm sure we will. And I'm sure Kobe beef will be a significant part of the episode. I'll let you tackle that one. (laughs) Sounds good. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.